You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, hey, a few in-house things. Andrew is preaching in a few weeks, guys, so uh, make sure to come to that. That's happening uh, June 12th. So Andrew is one of the four men in our our uh, pastor residency program here, and so we want to give him a chance to preach for us. So that's going to happen in a few weeks. You don't want to miss that. Uh, some other in-house things. Uh, hey, if you're here and you're new, I see some new faces, just so you know, one of the big things that we value here is small groups, which happen Wednesday and Thursday nights. If you want to get connected and get more ingrained into the community here, that's like the number one way to do it. And so talk to someone around you. I'm sure they're in a small group. They can plug in or tell you where uh, the closest one to your house is at. Um, let's see if there's anything else. I w- oh, yeah, we're having baptism next week, all right? So we have one person on the docket for that. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you're a confessor of Christ, and you have not been baptized yet, next Sunday would be a great time to do that. And so if, you're, if that's you, come talk to me. Uh, talk, talk to one of the pastors. We would love to talk to you more about that and follow up with you on that. So next week is baptism. If you're interested, please let us know. Uh, and then one more order of business, and this one take a little bit longer before we jump into our passage for today. If you are here and you are a commissioned officer now, uh, graduating this weekend, having graduated this weekend, I want you, if you're okay with it, to come up here because we want to pray over you, okay, before you go ahead and go out into the fleet. So if you're here and you are a firstie who just graduated, come on up here, especially if you're a member here, okay? Come on up here, come on up here, come on up here, come on. You can stand to my right over here, line up over here. Come on, no, you can walk across the stage. Go ahead. We just want to be sure to, to, to bless you. You can come over here to my right. All right, I just want to love on you guys and pray over you as you guys head into your, your futures, all right? Would that be okay? All right, let's pray. I'm just going to extend my hand over you all. Father, uh, these men and, and this woman up here, God, you love And you have put them here at this point in time, in this place, and uh, Lord, you have um, called them to this, and you have made them capable for this, and you have gifted them for this, and we are excited now to see them embark on this, uh, this responsibility and this duty that you've given to them to be officers and to lead other enlisted men and women. And so, God, we pray that you bless them and keep them, that your face would shine upon them, be gracious to them, give them peace, be near them. God, help them to persevere, walk with them. We pray that through your Holy Spirit and and as he applies your truth to their hearts, that they would be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in hope. God, I pray that you would keep them persevering. Father, I pray as they take up the mantle as officers leading others, that they would be like Daniel in Babylon, who rose through the ranks and had great favor with others because he was faithful to you, because he maintained his integrity before you, because he put his hope in you. God, I pray that they'd be like Jesus, who used his authority and who used his power to be a blessing to others, to step out of his place, the glories of heaven, to come and seek and save us. I pray that they would be like that. And so, God, I pray that as this group of people head out from here, commissioned by the the Navy and the Marine Corps, that you would be with them and strengthen them, allow them to to be a blessing to other people. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We love you guys and thank you. Go ahead and take a seat.
So, uh, yeah, they got, they got a long journey ahead of them, at least five years, I'm pretty sure, in the Navy or in the Marine Corps ahead of them. And just like them, all of us got a, uh, got a journey ahead of us. I mean, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, uh, as long as you're living and breathing, you're doing it for him. As long as you're living and breathing, you are called to, uh, to follow him, to know him, and to be a blessing to other people. And so just like them, it's going to be challenging. <laughs> it's going to be a challenging uh, long haul from here on out. And so the question I really want to ask today, it's, it's a very basic question, but a very important question is, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. Now what? <laughs> What's it going to be like from here on out? Like, what should I... What do I practice? What do I do from here on out to make it for the long haul? And in this psalm, Psalm 103, I think we have four really important points that, that, that David's modeling here uh, that can give us something that we practice for the rest of our lives. So that, not, the, not just that we make it and limp on by, but that we thrive, that we have a rich relationship with God, and that we have an effective life for his kingdom, okay? So I'm saved. Now what? Four points here, okay, that we're going to cover today. First, we have to respond to God. Second, remember his faithfulness. Third, rely on his love. Fourth, reflect on yourself. Respond to God, remember his faithfulness, rely on his love, reflect on yourself. We're going to go ahead and jump right on into it, all right? So first, let's talk about responding to God. Uh, you'll notice in verses 1 and 2, and at the very end of the psalm, there's this bookend, like uh, the units that clo- open and close the psalm are very similar. The similarities are this. David speaks to his own soul and says, bless the Lord, all that is in me. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. At the end, he says, bless the Lord, you his angels. Bless the Lord, all his works. And then he closes and says, bless the Lord, oh my soul. Bless the Lord. And in, in this um, psalm, in the Hebrew, the way that it's constructed and it's, uh, uh, you know, if you could, you know, Hebrew, whatever. Um, it, it literally, it, to bless here means to adore on bended knee. Now, here's what's strange about bless the Lord, that phrase, that concept. And here's what's strange about this, I think, the Psalms in general. Uh, here's the strange. God does not need our praise. <laughs> he doesn't. God does not need our praise. He doesn't need our blessing. He doesn't need us to tell anyone else to give it either. Uh, God is whole. God is happy. God is all sufficient. God is self-sufficient. God is not deficient in any way. It's not like when we glorify God or praise God, somehow we're making up for some lack of glory or lack of worth or lack of value. God, God is fine. <laughs> totally fine. Yet, here and all throughout the Psalms, God is praised and God receives it and God welcomes it. That's strange. So why? If God is completely happy, completely whole, yet he expects worship, receives worship and praise and blessing, welcomes it, why? What's going on here? There are two reasons, okay? First reason is this. It's plain and simple because he is worthy. He is the definition of beauty. He is the definition of perfection. Everything good and and awe-inspiring that takes your breath away, that came from him like from out from the surge of, of uh, love and creativity that is in the Trinity, God creates. 
He, just plain and simple, is worthy of our praise, worthy of our bended knee. And look, if God does not expect praise, if God does not receive praise, if God does not welcome praise and blessing, then he must not take himself very seriously. And if God does not take himself seriously, then why would we take him seriously? And so the matter of fact is he is worthy. Now, you might think to yourself, what a narcissist. This guy is God who, who needs nothing, doesn't need the praise, doesn't need the blessing, yet receives it and welcomes it. What a narcissist. C.S. Lewis, before he converted, says, that to me sounded like a vain old woman seeking compliments. And uh, the problem is, or the error in that thinking is, God's not proud or arrogant or a narcissist or self-centered to welcome and receive praise. In fact, let me tell you, that it's very humble of God to do so. Because God needs nothing. He, he requires nothing from anybody else, yet he welcomes it from us. And so here's what this means. Here's, a conclu- here's the only logical conclusion you can come to. God's welcoming of our praise, certainly it's because he is worthy, but it's not for his benefit. He doesn't need it. It's not for his benefit, so then who's the benefactor? Who benefits from God receiving our praise and blessing? It must be us. And that's the second reason why, why God welcomes our praise. It's because we need to praise. We were built to praise. We were created to praise. When God created everything, it's not because he was lonely it's not because he was insecure and needed affirmation from us, from his creatures. When God created us, it's not because he was bored. No. So then why did he create us? As a gift to us. It's so that we might be created to enjoy the abundance that is in him. Out of the surplus of love, out of the more than enough love to give, he creates us so we might know it and enjoy it and connect to him. That, that is our purpose in existence, to praise him in such a way that fulfills our purpose in living. Like, that's what we were created for, to praise him and know him. It's not a benefit to God. It's a benefit to us that we get to praise him. C.S. Lewis, okay, in that same, seg- that same uh, part where he says that I felt like God was a narcissist, in his commentary on the Psalms, here's what C.S. Lewis says. I bring this quote out every once in a while. I think it's spot on. Uh, you need to understand this if you want to have a rich, vibrant relationship with God. He says this about praise. He says, I had never noticed that all, listen here, I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously spontaneously urge us to join them in praising saying, isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? Now listen here. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers It's not a compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. 
It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anybody how good he is, to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. See, we bless and praise God because if we don't, our joy is stifled. Because if we don't, our appreciation never graduates into enjoyment and into awe and into wonder. So see, God's not proud or a narcissist to require and welcome our praise. It's a gift to us because without that opportunity, without God making himself and all his glory available to us to behold, we will never realize the purpose in our existence. We were built for this, made for this, to know him and enjoy him. This is why the Westminster Confession says, here's what life is, with, here's what Christianity is, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we praise, because he is worth it. We glorify him, but by doing so, we enjoy him forever. And that's the purpose of you and me, why we're here on earth, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So listen, if he did not, if God did not have the humility to welcome our praise, our, be- our bended knee to him, he's withholding from us the very realization of our existence. So I'm saved. <laughs> You're saved. Now what? This is incredible. Listen, you spend the rest of your life responding to God. You get that? You spend the rest of your life responding to the glory, the beauty, the splendor of God that he has made available to you. And remember, listen, if you remember, remember, if you don't respond, if, that, if you don't respond, you don't care. Because response is what we do when we're gripped, when we're captured. It's the genuine overflow of intrigue. So if you don't respond to God naturally, but instead with compulsion, then something else is more beautiful, something else is more worthy, something else is more valuable. So why do we sing here? Why do we sing? It's because it's a response. Why do we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday? Because it's a response. Why do we evangelize? That's a response. Why do we do anything that we do? It's a response. Brothers and sisters, Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. This is your spiritual act of what? Worship. Our whole life is a response to God, and that's not a burden, that's a joy, because that's why we exist. For his glory and for our good. For his glory and for our joy. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So, um, I'm saved now what? Respond to God for the rest of our lives. But the reality of it is this. That doesn't always work. <laughs> I don't always feel that. and I don't always have that clarity. I don't. And you don't. So what if we are not intrigued? What if we're not gripped? What if our heart's not moved? We need something to help us respond to God. We need something that's going to make us responsive. So what is it? Here's the second thing we have to do if we're going to make it. You know, as we thrive, if we're going to thrive. Two, remember his faithfulness. Remember his faithfulness. And now what David does, I mean, he's been doing it, but now you'll see very clearly that he's talking to his own soul. He does not just charge his own soul to bless the Lord. He charges, commands his own soul to do some other things. Look at verse two. 
Keep going in verse 2. He says to his own soul, forget not all his benefits, all his benefits. The benefits of walking with God. So what are those for David? He's reminding himself, what are all the benefits of walking with God? He continues in verse 3 and says, who forgives all your iniquity? Think about that. Past, present, future mistakes and sins and blemishes all removed. And David, you remember, did some pretty awful things. Some pretty taboo things that would get him canceled today. And that's not, I mean, really though, that would, that would make him totally forgotten and hated. But God has not. God has forgiven him. Keep going. Verse 3, who heals all your diseases, okay? And, and so what's going on there is uh, in the old covenant, the, the conditions of, of relationship with God, of covenant relationship with God is if you obeyed, God would take care, God has said, I would take care of you. I will, I will restore your health. And so what David is recalling here is God's faithfulness to keep his promises. Keep going to verse 4. What are all the benefits? Who redeems your life from the pit? He's telling his own soul this. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? So if you're paying attention there, there's this, there's this grand reversal. He was once in the pit, but now he is crowned. What's he referring to there? He was just a shepherd boy who was then on the run for his life, who became king of all of Israel. Verse 5. It satisfies you with goods so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He's been contented and renewed by God. So David is looking to his own heart and he's preaching to his own heart all of the personal evidences of God's faithfulness to him. All the times that God's come through for him, all the, the stories that he knows in his own life that have, how God has come through for him, he's preaching to his own soul those things, God's faithfulness. Many keeps on going, but you'll notice there's a shift in where David is looking to. Now he shifts from his own personal story to the grand story, to uh, the story that he finds himself in. Look at verse 6. He says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He has in mind there, I think, Israel being saved from Egypt. When they were slaves in Egypt, he del God delivers them. Verse 7, he made, his ways, uh, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. So God, by calling Moses and commissioning Moses to lead the people out of Egypt and into the, pro to the promised land, God reveals himself. What does he reveal about himself? That's what verse 8 is. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God reveals through history, through the Exodus, through Israel's story, the story that David finds himself in, that God is dependable, that God is faithful. So look, David's confronting his own soul. He's confronting his own soul, commanding his own soul to remember God's faithfulness in his own life and to remember God's faithfulness in history. And what David does, we must do too. Look, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Welsh preacher, died in 1981. Uh, he says this, Do not, you must not let yourself talk to you, you must talk to yourself. Get that? That's what David's doing here. He's not letting worry, guilt, shame have the final word and absolutely overwhelm him and drown him in, 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 their, in those things. 
what is he doing instead? He's defying shame. He's defying worry. He's defying anxiety by gripping his own heart, bringing it before his eyes and saying, heart, remember when God has been faithful to you. Remember when God has been faithful in history. Remember God's faithfulness. Do not let yourself talk to you. You must talk to yourself by reminding yourself of God's faithfulness. Look, there's a reason why uh, when you read the Old Testament story, the, the historical narrative, the authors of the Bible recount all these instances where like the patriarchs and different leaders and the people of Israel make these small altars as they travel around, these small little memorials. Every time they did that, it was because God did something. Because God helped them cross the Red Sea. God helped them cross the Jordan River. God helped them in that battle. God provided for them and made a promise to them there in that spot Essentially, they can look in the rearview mirror and see all these scattered memorials where God has made promises and where God has kept promises, where God has come through and God has been faithful. Listen, you and I need those memorials in our life. You and I need to look back in the rearview mirror of our life and see scattered evidence, scattered memorials everywhere that prove and testify to us that God is dependable, that God is trustworthy. Even though we don't feel like it, even though we don't see it and can't make sense of it, we know that God time and time again has come through. He will do it again. I tell my heart that. You and I need to have memorials. Do you have those? Have you slowed down your life enough, put a pause on your life enough to take note of the times where God has come through? I'm telling you, I've said this last week, I'll say it again. It takes so much to excite us about the Lord. It takes so much to get us to trust and we have to be so persuaded that God is trustworthy and then rely on him. It takes so much to do to move our heart one inch that direction. It takes so very little for us to just lose trust. It takes so very little for us to be like, oh, it's over now. We have such short memories. You have to have those memorials. Do you have them? Do you have them? In your, have you taken note of those things in your life where God has come through? Let me give you a few of mine. And I, you need your own, but hopefully mine can just encourage you. When I was 16, my brother died. And I hated God. I was so mad at God. I, I, I was so disappointed in God. And I was like, God, I want nothing to do with you. That You're mean. You're cruel. I can't trust you. But for some reason, I kept reading my Bible. I don't know. I think I was just looking for something. And I came to Psalm 15. I remember this. I was 16. I came to Psalm 15. And it starts off in Psalm 15, the NIV. That's what I read back then, all right? It says, Lord, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live in your holy hill? Like, who can, who can have a close relationship with God? And I was like, all right, Lord, if you're real, I want that. I want that from you. I want closeness with you. I want you to be real to me. So go ahead, and this is your chance to prove to me that you are real. Okay, let's do this. I kept reading, then, you know, verse 2, verse 3, you know, whatever. Come to verse 4, and it ends by saying, so who's going to be the person who lives in the sanctuary, who, who's close with God, who lives on the holy hill? It says in verse 4, at least in the NIV, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Oh. Sometimes you read something in the Bible and it's like, man, that was put there for me at that point in time. 
where just stars aligned and it was confirmed in my soul. I had that assurance in that moment that God knew what I was going through, that God was with me, and that God was calling me to trust him. When I was 25 years old, a fresh 25, Rebecca and I went to go and try to help a church that was dying and in decline here in the Annapolis area. And at first it was going great. I became the interim pastor. My dreams were coming true. It was awesome. And then it blew up, not in a good way, in a bad way. And we were, we, we, we were pushed out. And it was awful. And it was hollowing. It was depressing. But that, friends, was the catalyst for this church. When I was, uh, when we, we, I, I, I don't know how long we did, but we used to meet in an elementary school. I think for two years or so we met in an elementary school. We got kicked out. Um, and it was three weeks, before, four weeks before Easter. And we didn't know what we were going to do, so we met in a, the community center for a little bit of time, but it was, you know, not going to be a long-term answer for us, and we needed something. <laughs> and uh, out of nowhere, we, we scoured all of Annapolis. Aaron and Taylor and I scoured all of Annapolis. We found nothing except Friday. Like, the Friday before Easter, I got a call back from a theater that let us rent it out there for a year. At the end of that year, our lease ended. COVID hit. Everything shut down. This place was inhabited by a different church. They dissolved, and they gave us everything. And so I look back at just even my life, this church's life, and see countless memorials where God has come through in a way that every one of us know only He could have done it. The Friday before Easter, unilaterally, no strings attached, here's everything we... What? I hope you have those memorials. You need them where you can slow down your life and take note of all the times where God has come through for you. That way you know he's going to come through for you still. At the same time, I'm realistic. And we'll forget. We will forget. Uh, you might take all the notes in the world of all the times God's come through for you, and you might find yourself in a place where you don't think it's enough still, or it might not persuade you. And so, like David, we need something besides our own personal story. We need our personal story. We need something outside of it, though. We need what he has, the historical story, the story that we find ourselves in. But unlike David, he points to the Exodus, the original Exodus from Egypt. Do you know what we point to? To know that God is faithful, that he will keep his promises. We point to the great Exodus, the true Exodus, Jesus on the cross in my place, in my place. That's how you and I know that God is faithful. Romans 5 says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Though one would scarcely die for a righteous person, maybe for a good person one would even dare to die, but God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, weak, helpless, Christ died for us. Romans 8 he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And now nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not heights, not depths, not angels, not demons, not principalities. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's what the cross of Christ testifies to. You're not just forgiven, but you're accepted and you're covered in God's covenantal pledge that all things will work out for your good and for his glory. That's what the cross shouts at us. 
Beyond our personal story and memorials, we have the great memorial, the cross of Christ. <laughs> and that happened. He did that for us while we were still sinners. That means, that means this. You cannot sin your way out of God's faithfulness. You cannot mess up your way out of You can't mess it up too much where you're out all of a sudden. God is faithful. So you have to remember God's faithfulness. You have to stuff your heart with His faithfulness. That helps you respond to God the rest of your life. All right, so we remember his faithfulness. We got one more here, two more actually. Uh, thirdly, third practice, I'm saved, now what? What's the rest of my life? How am I going to thrive? We're, we rely on his love. We rely on his love. Now listen, I want to give you kind of like a framework to understand these next few verses. So David, you remember, this is the Old Testament and in the Old Testament, that's the Old Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, uh, God was in a covenant relationship with the people of Israel, but there were conditions, stipulations to that covenant where he blessed them, uh, he would give them security and rest in the promised land, but only if they obeyed the law, only if they kept those conditions of the covenant, okay? So I want to give you that as a framework as we head into these verses. Look at verse 9. David writes, He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Here he's saying that the judgment that Israel earns for themselves because of their disobedience, because they failed to keep the law, their exile over and over, those kinds of things, he's saying here that their judgment is short-lived. He will not keep his anger forever. It's short-lived. Look at verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us <clears throat> according to our iniquities. David here is saying that the severity of judgment, the severity of judgment that Israel experiences is never equal to the quantity or quality of their sin. All right? So ang God's anger towards Israel in this time, like when they're under judgment, it's never as severe as it, need, as it should be. It's not as long as it should be. It's short-lived and it's merciful. But why? So why is God's anger less severe, short-lived, and short-lived? Why? Look at verse 11 and 12. Here's our answer. This is astounding. He says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who, steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Here's what this means. When God covenants himself, pledges himself to his people, he gives them his infinite love. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's ever-expanding, ongoing, with no end, so great is his love. Infinite love he has, but also an irreversible status because he separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. They're never touching. They're ongoing as far as we're concerned. He separates our sin from us. So we have his infinite love, and he gives us an irreversible status. And so listen, the fundamental reason why we are disciplined in life, okay, why they experience judgment now crossed to us here who are now living in the new covenant, walking with Jesus. We don't fear judgment. Jesus absorbed all the judgment, all the punishment, all the consequence of our disobedience, but we still endure discipline. Hebrews 12, we will be disciplined as his sons and daughters. That's going to happen. But listen, the motivation in God's dealing with us and his discipline of us is not anger. And I think we get this wrong. 
we oftentimes think to ourselves, when's the other shoe going to drop? When, when's God going to drop the hammer? I've committed this sin. I, I've broken this law. I've transgressed in this way. So now there, there's got to be like an equal and measurable response from God to this. What's going to happen? Wait for the shoe. That's not how it works. God's discipline, his sanctification, his transforming of us, it's never motivated by anger, by getting even, by vengeance. It's not how God works when you're in Christ. His motivation is what? Love. God disciplines those he loves. And so what, what's so loving about discipline, about, about God's dealing with us? Here's what it is. When you are in Jesus... Did you know that God sees you as flawless? Did you know that God sees you as no different than the righteousness and innocence of his very own son? That's what he thinks when he beholds you. And so in love, listen, in love, he is making you what you are already. That's what love is. He's transforming you in his dealings with you. And it's all motivated by love to make you what you are. He sees you as flawless. Now he's going to make you flawless. He transforms you by his love. That is what he is doing here. So listen, since God's love is infinite, our sin and weaknesses never trig- are never the trigger for God's discipline in our life because that means there's no deficiency in God's love that would ever make room for impatience and frustration to creep in and motivate him. And since our sin has been irreversibly separated from us. There was no regard for anything that would make God operate otherwise. So you get that. There's no deficiency in his love that would somehow make frustration and impatience creep in and all of a sudden become the motivation in his dealings with us. He does not regard our sin. That's not why he disciplines us. He disciplines us, deals with us, because he loves us. As high as the, as high as the heavens are from the earth, so great is his love towards those who fear him. And then David gives us this amazing illustration in verses 13 and 14. Go there. To help us grasp this reality. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. We are, listen, we are to think about God's dealing with us, his discipline of us, his interaction with us, like we think about a father interacts with a child. The ideal father, the best of fathers, interacts with their child, their little child, in grace, in patience, in tenderness, and that is amazing. And let me tell you as a father of a two-year-old that so often I operate out of deficiency. I'm tired, I don't have the bandwidth, I'm busy, I'm frustrated, I'm impatient. That is not how God deals with us because he has no deficiency. He has all the time in the world. He's not busy. He's not, going, he's not hurried. God is the great father, the ideal father. He deals with us in compassion and in tenderness and in grace. So therefore, when he deals with us and disciplines us, it's never from a place of being short with us or impatient, or frustrated, it's always out of love to make us into what he already sees us as. That's what he's up to in his dealings with us. 
And so as you are saved, now I'm saved, now what? It's going to be hard sometimes. God's going to sanctify you, and because He loves you, He's going to transform you. And so just remind yourself, rely on His love. This is all an act of love. This is all an overflow of God's infinite love for me. Lastly, you need to reflect on yourself. Okay, you need to reflect on yourself. Now, David makes some pretty depressing comments here in verses 15 and 16. Look, he says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone. And his place knows it no more. We, humanity, are finite. We are fragile. We are... uh, this, this is all the consequence of sin. Sin has entered the world, sin has entered our bodies, and now we are fragile and finite. And David is honest with himself. David is honest with the state of humanity. We need to have this. What David is practicing is self-knowledge. You and I need to know thyself. We must know ourselves, our limitations, our depravity, our sin, our potential for terrible things. All of these things we need to have knowledge of it. And here's why. <laughs> because the more that you know yourself, the greater you can know God. Look, St. <laughs> Augustine says, the more you know yourself, the more you know God. And that's what separates Christianity from all other religions. Tons of religions say know yourself, know yourself, know yourself for self-awareness, for self-help, for self-clarity. That's all good and all, but Christianity alone says know yourself in order to know God. And so why is that? Why is that? Well, actually, first look at verses 17 through 19. Here's where I think where David gives us this this, uh, precedence. He says, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So this contrast is made. Here's who we are. We're limited, we're finite, we're fragile. Here's who God is. He's from everlasting to everlasting. Here's what this shows us. The more we are honest with ourselves, the more we are self-aware, the more we know thyself, the contrast with God is magnified. Magnified. And here's why this is important. Because when you see yourself clearly, when you see yourself clearly, you will see how much he has forgiven you. You will see how much he has saved you from. You will see how much he is restraining you by his grace. You'll see how patient he is with you. And you will see how great his love is because he sees to the very bottom of your heart every single dirty thing yet loves you anyway. He knows you to the very bottom and loves you to the highest heavens. You will not be moved by that. That will not electrify you you don't know how deep your sin is, how great potential you have to mess things up, how far gone you are and were, that's when God's love and the gospel becomes electrifying to you. And that is why the more you know yourself and are honest with yourself, the greater God becomes to you. But also, here's what else happens. It transforms you because you'll never look down on anyone else. If you get this, you'll never, never look down on anyone else because you know deep down in your heart you're no better than they are. In fact, 
You're more far gone than they are. Like Paul, like I am the worst of all sinners. You'll never look down on anyone else if you get this, if this moves into the center of your heart. But also, you'll never lose your patience with anyone else because just like they're a work in progress, guess what? So are you all the time. God is, God is always sanctifying you. You know what else? You'll never lose hope for anybody else. You'll never, ever lose hope for anyone else because if you were saved and you were that far gone, if you were that far gone, then no one else is that far gone. I'll close with this illustration. The more you know yourself, the more you know God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that same Welsh preacher, he gives this illustration about how we need to know our sin, the depths of our depravity. He gives this illustration and says that, imagine if you were not home, yet a messenger or the postman comes to your house and arrives with a bill for you, and your guest in your house pays that bill. When you arrive home and you find out that your guest paid a bill for you, if you didn't know what the bill was, he says, you would not know whether to shake his hand or kiss his feet. What is our bill? An infinite sin debt, an infinite cost, an infinite indebtedness. And God, through Christ, pays that debt, pays that bill. And you will o- that will only be fresh. <laughs> that will only ever be meaningful if you know thyself. Because in the contrast, God's love and His grace and His power becomes overwhelming. So you're saved. Now what? You're commissioned. Now what? Right? All of us. Now what? With all that lies ahead, remember God's faithfulness. Rely on His love. And remind yourself. Know thyself. Reflect on yourself. Let's pray. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.